All right, we're going to try this again. Um, I'm going to call this second service. And it's going to be a little different than the first one in that I'm the only one here. Um, turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 10. Last week I was told it was the last time we'd be uh, we'd be in 1 Corinthians. That's not entirely true. Um, just making sure that was working. Because uh, I was planning on covering more ground last week than I actually did. So uh, I'm going to finish chapter 10 and then we're going to take things a little bit different. I'm going to read the text and then I'll explain where I'm going from here. But just in case you're watching this online... Uh, in the camera. I know that I am teaching to an empty room right now, so it's not that uh, everyone's just asleep, it's that they're actually at home asleep. Um, but I wanted this to be recorded, and I, I wanted uh, the people that missed today's service, I know we've got a, a good handful of people out uh, sick this week, I, I wanted uh, you guys to be able to, to be part of um, the study in 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 to 33, and uh, tell you how this is going to go. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jew or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Um, so we're not going to go through this passage the way we normally do. Uh, I want to get that out of the way and, and say that right away. This is, this is a different kind of sermon. Um, if you want to find a verse-by-verse -verse teaching through this passage, I'm sure you can find one that uh, is more deep in detail than the one you're about to, to get. Uh, but the thing is, is at the end of chapter 10, we have a section that is largely review. And we come to a time with our church where I've got a bunch of things to say before my sabbatical that I've got to fit in somewhere. So, um, you, can, you can go back. To chapter 8 and see that the verses we're covering in chapter 10 are cover, you know, dealing with the same thing. If you want to hear me teach on these topics, you can go to YouTube or our website and find those teachings. Um, there's not a lot of new information at the in chapter 10, but it is a repeat of things that Paul has already said. So this is going to be a quick review, first and foremost. I'm going to give you a sort of commentary on this passage. We will walk through each verse. I'll offer a few thoughts, show how it show. Uh, attempt to show how it ties into the other passages that we've taught. And, um, and then I'm, I'm going to tell you something else that you already know, uh, that it's so obvious that Paul doesn't even think it's worth saying out loud, even though the last three chapters have been built around it. 
And that's going to be what I spend most of my time on this morning. And uh, it was important enough, I thought, it was worth recording. So verse 23, which we already read, says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Now you know this already. What you can do isn't always the same as what you should do. Asking what you're allowed to do is not uh, really the right question. The right question is, what is helpful? What builds up? What blesses the people around me and, and serves to bring them to the knowledge of Christ? Now, you can and should apply this principle to all areas of your life, not just food sacrifice to idols and the things that Paul is dealing with in this chapter. In verse 24, he writes, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. This is kind of the theme verse of this paragraph, of this passage. That's what you should do. Seek others' well-being rather than your own good. It's what Christ has done for us. He sacrificed his own life for ours. We think of Philippians chapter 2, where we are told in no uncertain terms, consider others as better than yourself. If we could figure out how to do that, the command to love one another would surely be fulfilled. Verse 25 through 28. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. Now this is dealing with some practical stuff that has already been addressed in chapter 8. Continue reading verse 26. He says, For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. He quotes from that verse twice anyways. This is the practical stuff already covered in previous chapters. Don't make problems where there aren't any problems. If someone gives you food, just say thank you and eat the food. If, you, if someone uh, invites you over for dinner, don't make a problem that would prevent you from eating with that person. It, but now if the one eating with you sees that meal somehow as a ritual that gives glory to idols and false gods, well then don't eat it. If you're grocery shopping and you see meat on sale, buy it. Don't ask questions, just eat the food. This, this goes to show what Paul has already taught, mainly that it's never been about the item of food. It's always been about relationships and what can promote both holiness before God and unity between brothers. It's not been about what kind of food you eat. It's that you make time and the effort to eat with other people without offense. It's about how you treat others. It's about caring for your brother. It's about loving your neighbor. And twice in this passage, you notice Paul, is, Paul quotes from Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. And he uses this verse to speak to people on both sides of this argument about food sacrifice to idols. To those who say, I can't eat that. Paul says, why? It's, it's God's food. The earth is his. All its fullness. But to the person who says, I can eat this, and also, I can eat whatever I want. Paul says, guess what? That's not your food. These aren't your rights. Even you are not your own. You were bought at a price. This is my Father's world, as we sing in the hymn. And you need to act like you're caring for it, and that begins with your brother. The earth is the Lord's, not yours, and the fullness thereof. Verse 29, we're just going right along, huh? Steady foot. Verse 29 and 30, he says, Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake of thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? You see how Paul is going back and forth, addressing those on both sides of the argument. He knows that he is not willing to cause anyone to stumble. He'll make sacrifices wherever necessary. 
so that there's no obstacle between this person and faith in Christ. So for that reason, he won't eat certain things. But for the uh, that's for the conscience of the other person, not his conscience. His conscience is clean, he can eat whatever he wants. But he also knows that if a person with a weak conscience is condemning another person, condemning another person, speaking evil of another person, well, that's wrong. He says that shouldn't be. If I'm eating my food with a clean conscience and thanksgiving, why would someone be speaking evil of me in my lunch? There's a, a difference here between the person who is stumbled, truly stumbled by another's, action, another's actions, as in they are tempted to sin because of what you do or say or eat. That's one category. And Paul says, I don't want to offend that person because in offending them, I'm actually leading them towards a, a debilitating sin. There's a difference between that person and the person who's just irritated and whiny, maybe even a little bit legalistic. And Paul says, if I'm doing things with a clear conscience and I'm thankful, you don't get to speak evil of me. And again, he addresses people on both sides of the argument. In verse 31, 33, 233, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And once more, we see this repeated theme, and we are thankful that it has been repeated so many times in Paul's letters, because this is the heart of Paul's ministry. Paul does what Paul does for the glory of God, and the good of, and the good of his people, excuse me. He does what he does to praise Jesus and to save souls. He lives unselfishly and encourages the church to follow him in this way of life, not giving offense, but giving grace. The big theme here, we have seen, is love. It's all warming up to chapter 13. The specific application of love in these last few chapters has been about meals. It's about, been about eating together. Eat with each other. Don't do things that would prevent your ability to eat with each other. When you eat with each other, don't be offensive. I think we've covered that. Actually, I hope to cover all of this last week, and that didn't happen. Um, but even though I, it was my intention to spend these last two weeks before my sabbatical, sharing some things outside of Corinthians, it worked out rather nicely because these verses in Corinthians do tie into something I wanted to share with the church before I took uh, a little break. Next week, I'm going to teach on Sabbath rest and, and about my sabbatical and the purpose and the goals and, and how each one in our church can benefit from, from Sabbath, this God-given, God-ordained, God-approved, and God-commanded gift of rest. Really, next week, I'm going to talk about all that. Next week, I'm going to talk about rest. This week, I'm going to tell you how to work. And while I'm gone, you, even if you're only listening to this online, have homework to do. And you can see it in Corinthians. Because what became clear to me as I've studied this is that while what I'm about to say is not a strict uh, explanation or exegesis of 1 Corinthians 10, per se, this passage in Corinthians that we come to in our study is a passage that tells us the work we have to do as a church. This passage in Corinthians tells us how to do certain things. But in order to receive the how, we have to be obedient to the what and have to have some understanding of the why. This passage tells us how to eat together and really how to love one another. Now, I'll take this opportunity to remind you that the what to that how is eat together. I have a very specific meal-related assignment for each and every one of you while I'm gone on sabbatical. Again, you will have homework. There will be a test. But, but before that even, um, let me show you how important this simple act was in the Church of Corinth 
and how it wasn't just important, it was normal. How eating together was just something the Christians took for granted because it was so ingrained in their understanding what it meant to be in community with people. Now, Paul does not command, like your pastor is commanding, eat together. Take someone out to lunch from your church. Invite a couple out to dinner. Make a meal for someone and get to know them. In fact, not just in Corinthians, which talks a whole lot about eating, but all of his letters. Paul never once in any of his writings rebukes the people for eating alone. But he frequently gives advice on the details of how to eat together. This shows us that Christians were eating together. They were having fellowship together. Of course, this argument from silence, where he just doesn't say to eat together, but he explains the, the how rather than the why. That's not the only thing we have to rely on when we talk about the subject. Acts chapter 2 shows us a picture of what the very early church looked like. And in uh, Acts 2.46, it says, So continuing, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now we could go back a few verses in Acts 2 to the very well-known verse that describes the four things the church continued steadfastly in. The four things you know them, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. But that is, that breaking of bread in that passage is generally understood to refer to communion. And it seems that eating their food with gladness and simplicity, in verse 46 of Acts 2, is referring to something more common, maybe less ritual. Also in Corinthians, there's a reference to what we call the love feast, which was a church-wide gathering, a meal shared by everyone at a local church, sort of like today's potluck. More on that when we get to chapter 11 next year. So that the early church ate together it is undeniable. This is an accepted truth. But we can go back further before the birth of the church on Pentecost and see that Christ himself, who designed the church and has built the church and is building the church, intended for the church to be a place of shared meals. Jesus tells his disciples, uh, who were young and poor, so just keep that in mind in case you were going to get out of this from applying to you somehow for one or, one or two of those reasons. Jesus says to them in Luke 14, when you give a dinner party, he actually speaks this while he's at, uh, at while he is a, a, a guest of someone. Um, the disciples were surely theirs. This got uh, handed down in their memoirs called the Gospels. Uh, but he, when sa he says, when you give a dinner party, he's implying that his followers would be hospitable, feasting people. Let me just read you from Luke chapter 14. Verse 12 to 14, he says, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends or your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, or you shall be repaid of the resurrection of the just. Of course, there's enough there for a, an entire sermon of its own. And the application perhaps belongs at the end of the sermon when I tell you that you all need to go and invite people over to your house. Um, but right now, I just want you to notice that Jesus says, when, not if. You know, we can look at the how. How do we eat together? But right now, I just want you to feel the weight of the what. What am I supposed to do? Give a feast. That's what you're supposed to do. Ever so often, as you guys know, I preach a message on fasting, usually at the beginning of Lent. I do this because fasting is good, it is effective, and it is neglected. But in that message, I always make a point to show that it is also expected. And to prove that point and address the question, 
that some will inevitably ask, do I have to? Do I have to fast? Sounds uncomfortable. I always point out that Jesus, who addresses both fasting and feasting, he never says, if you fast. Instead, he always says, when you fast. In the same way, he doesn't say, if you give a feast. He says, when. He also never says, if you pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. And we know why it's phrased like that. It's because the things he's teaching are not optional. There are assumptions being made that if you follow Jesus, you will do certain things. Praying, obviously, is one of them. Giving feasts, perhaps less obviously, is another. Perhaps it should be noted that a feast is just any special meal that you invite guests to. Right? We're not talking about a, a banquet with a hundred people, necessarily. But we are probably talking about something more than just uh, the handing a person a bag of chips and saying, do you want some? Uh, this is something where you invite people into your space, into your home, and you feed them. Jesus expected his church to be a feasting people. And of course, just as we can look back at the time before the birth of the church in Acts to see that it was designed to be a feasting enterprise, we can also go look forward uh, via prophecies to the end of the church age and see that this whole Christianity thing is really just warming up to a banquet of epic proportions. The Supper of the Lamb is coming. Revelation speaks of this as well as one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 25, which tells us what we have to look forward to. It says, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've always loved that passage. I always love to realize the final victory, you know, that finish line that we've been talking about in chapter 9, so we run the race, we run to win, we've talked about that hope. On the other side of that finish line, there's a huge feast, it's a dinner party that's waiting for us. Seeing this in the Old Testament, seeing Jesus' expectations of his feast-giving disciples and then coming to Corinthians, we see that this letter, 1 Corinthians, talks the most about eating out of all the letters in the New Testament. And what else is 1 Corinthians about? Well, we know it's about an unhealthy, fractured church where Christians, rather than being unified around the gospel, were dividing over a long list of secondary issues. And one result of this tendency to divide was, of course, that they were not eating together. Now that makes sense because some of their problems were actually food related, right? They didn't like what the other one was eating. They didn't like uh, the, the food that this person bought at the market. But even the people dividing over other issues like the Paul versus Apollos versus Peter, that kind of thing, they probably weren't eating together either because as soon as you divide with someone and say, you're not of us, yeah, the, the invitations to dinner kind of dry up. So Corinthians, which is a letter written in part to heal schism and lead a church in unity, talks about eating more than any of Paul's letters. I do not believe this to be coincidental. By trying to heal the schism between meat-eaters and non-meat-eaters and Paulites and Apollosians, Paul is showing the heart, uh, his heart, the heart of the, the pastor Paul that he had for every single one of these Christians, no matter what faction they belonged to. 
he wanted them to eat together. Well, now, really, he wanted more than that. He wanted the body of Christ to be undivided, and eating together is one way to accomplish this and show that the unity of the body of Christ is something we actually believe. We believe that unity is something real, that Jesus Christ has made us one. I always love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about this in his book, Life Together. He said that Christian brotherhood or Christian unity, and I'm, I'm kind of par paraphrasing here, is not an ideal to be reached, but rather a reality to be recognized. In other words, the unity you have exists, whether or not you felt like it this morning. The unity you have with other believers in the church is a reality that was created by Christ. It is not something that you were called to create out of nothing. You were called to believe it and then walk in that truth. By eating together, the Corinthians could, and we can, recognize the work that God has already done for us on the cross, which is this. He has united us together with him, now and forever, world without end. Last week, in looking at Paul's opinions about the idolatry in Corinth, and even, uh, you know, he, he said even though the food itself is fine, but participating in the festival where, where idols are worshipped, that's not fine. You know, eat the food you buy at the store. We read this in, in our text today. But, but don't go to a sacrifice where demons are worshipped. Don't go to the person's house where their meal is a worship service to false gods. When we covered that last week, I said something about how Paul was preaching against a Sunday morning kind of Christianity. And he talked to people, he was talking to people in last week's text, who are living like the world six days, and even participating with other religions and cults, but then showing up on Sunday to take communion. You can't do that. You're to examine yourself, and you're to be a Christian seven days a week. Now, we know the road is narrow. There are dangers on both sides. There is an equal and opposite risk we face. There's another way to fall into this Sunday morning churchianity, another way you can fail in this, while still living a good moral life, and you're protecting yourself from, you know, the cults and the, the pagan religion and everything like that, you can still have a just a Sunday morning Christianity, can't you? By taking communion, which we did this morning, by taking communion with the people here at church, you are saying, we are one. We are the family of God. He has made it so. We are together. And by, by making that confession, by taking communion, you are committing to a responsibility for the other people in your church. The people who sit around you, even the weird ones that sit on the other side of the aisle. But if this is the only time you're with these people, if Sunday morning is the only time you come and, and meet with these people, it's the only time you pray with them, it's the only time you eat with them, sit with them, listen to them, then the real true unity that Christ has made is really not something that you believe. Or, or rather, it's you are not living according to these convictions and truths. Now, it is a truth that God has united us. It is a truth that God has made us family. If you do not behave like you are the family of God, if you do not behave that you are united, and that you are a brother, a sister to those around you, you are not walking in that truth. You're not walking in I'm going to tell you one of the reasons for my upcoming sabbatical. There's the obvious one, of course. Uh, it is going to be a time for my family, for me to rest, to be rejuvenated, to do a different kind of work, a more internal 
work rather than the external productive kind of work. And, and the purpose of this is so that I can fulfill my ministry uh, to you and, and to the church, to, to the God of the church, is so that I can bless you from a place of abundance rather than emptiness. And, and I'm going to talk more about all that next week. There's another reason for the sabbatical, though, and this has been a part of the intention since the idea was first mentioned at a board meeting 10 years ago. The sabbatical isn't just for me. It's for you, too. This is a time for each one of us to realize and walk in what we know we should believe. That is, this is God's church, that each one of us is a member in it, that each one of us has a calling to bless the others in it, and each one of us have been equipped for these ministries. Now, one of the more visible ways that this is going to happen is simply the, the Sunday morning people, right? There's going to be people, a few guys from our church have the opportunity to teach and preach more because I'm gone. Pray for them. There's other people that are, are making sure the church is unlocked and the lights are on, so to speak. Um, but the ministry that I'm more excited about is the less visible kind, the ministry that happens not on a Sunday morning, the ministry that takes place at your house, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, the ministry that takes place over a shared meal at your home or uh, over a cup of coffee or even just over the phone. And I, I really believe that just as my next my next 12 weeks or so is a time when I will be able to intentionally grow in my ministry to my wife and children and my family, so also this is going to be a time when each one of you grows in your ministry to this family. I've been confidently praying that this would be a time of ministry development, that we would serve one another well. The men who will be teaching have already committed themselves to serving you. Studying is hard. Preaching is hard. And they have sacrificed a lot of time and spiritual energy to bring the word to you. Please pray for them. Please be sure to come to church every week and support each one of them. But again, we know, we all know this, that the Sunday morning stuff, it isn't the whole picture. The apostles saw their ministry of teaching as one of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, implying that the ministry happens mostly when they're not equipping the people for it, when they're not teaching. It's got to happen after the sermon. Coming to church on Sunday is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You know, without coming to church, you will starve spiritually. But it's also to come to church every week and starve spiritually. You need more of a connection with this church than just a few minutes every Sundays, every seven days can offer. There's more to your church than what you're participating in now as you listen to this sermon. There's more to your church than me preaching. So here's your homework. I'm pretty sure you can guess it. I haven't been subtle. Eat with people. Now, maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you don't like cooking. Maybe you don't like eating and you just need to repent of that and, and I'll pray for you. Um, but maybe, you know, you don't, th this is something that you're just unwilling to do. Well, please recognize that the food part, it's not the most important thing. Meals are the vehicle that Scripture shows us for fellowship, and the fellowship is necessary. Of course, you can find other ways to enjoy that fellowship. I would suggest try hosting a meal. You know, normally we have Wednesday night Bible study and a meal beforehand. Um, there is one more this coming Wednesday. You can come, uh, but it's the last one for quite, quite a while. Uh, so Wednesday night crowd. Uh, if you normally come to our service on a Wednesday night, then you all have already made a habit of eating with people, and I know you don't have anything better to do on Wednesday night, so invite someone over. 
Or you could be like Jesus. You could do this really biblically. Be like Jesus and just invite yourself over to someone else's house because he totally does that. It's very biblical. What would Jesus do? Invite himself over to lunch at your house. That's what he would do. Uh, Thursday morning crowd. We've got, we got 10 to 20 people sometimes on a Thursday morning Bible study. Use that time. If you've been used to coming to the, the Thursday morning Bible study, well, set aside that time now to call people in your church. Set up a time to have coffee or something. This is what I'm asking you to do. Use your church directory. Use the time after Sunday service to find who you are going to meet up with and bless. I said that I have been praying that this is a, it's going to be a time for ministry development. And another thing that you have heard me say repeatedly in the past year and in our study in Corinthians is, is that asking the Lord, where do I serve, is not as good as asking, whom do I serve? In order to find the answer to this, you're actually going to have to spend time with people here at this church. A uh, meal is a good way to do that. And then don't be surprised when further ministry opportunities, further fellowships, fellowship develops out of these meetings. Now, I've actually taught on this kind of thing before. Um, when I taught on Acts chapter 242, I've taught that passage a few times. Uh, I mentioned the importance of eating together. And every time I've taught on that, you know what happens? Um, I get invited to a lot of meals. In fact, in the process of writing this message, I was invited by three different people, beautiful people from this church, to eat with them. And I was confirmed in my conviction of two things. One, you guys really know how to take care of a pastor. That's great. Thank you. And two, I really need to get out of here so that you guys can learn and figure out how to bless someone else for a change. Uh, and, and actually, I was considering this. It might be a little insulting because Jesus did say, don't invite your friends. We did read that, and I thought we were friends. Um, and I'm, I'm going to touch on that just at the end. You know, I read that passage from Luke, and it did mention, um, and don't invite the people that would invite you back. Don't invite your friends and family. And what Jesus is teaching there is not ditch your friends. He's saying make new ones. And he's sure to point out that these feasts that you throw are not transactional business meetings. They're actually demonstrations of love. So I'm going to add this little detail to your homework. This is your sabbatical homework. Have a meal with someone. And have it be with someone you've never had a meal with. Or at least, at the very least, have it be with someone you don't regularly have Meals with. Gentlemen, you should take your wife out to dinner, but you don't get credit for this assignment if you do it. That's not what I'm talking about. If you normally have dinner with so-and-so every Tuesday night, I'm saying branch out a little bit. Look for ways to bless this church that you have been so blessed with. Fulfill your ministry, not to a where or a what, but a whom. I am confident that in following Christ to the kitchens and tables of your neighbors, you will be blessed and you will become a blessing. And I will be praying for each of you that you are able to find who exactly the Spirit of God would lead you to and what you should make for them when they come over to your house for dinner. God bless you.